Ladies and gentlemen, can we take our seats, please, and begin with this, uh, this book talk on Arthur Herman's latest book, 1917, Lenin, Wilson, and the Birth of the New World Disorder. Is the course of history determined by broad, irresistible, impersonal social and economic forces? Or instead, is it determined by human agency and leadership, by the choices and actions of great men? This question has preoccupied and puzzled deep thinkers down the centuries. But I know the answer to it. And the reason I know the answer is that I've been a student of Arthur Herman's works of historical analysis and interpretation. These include, just to name a few, how the Scots invented the modern world, 2001. To rule the waves, how the British Navy shaped the modern world, 2004. Gandhi and Churchill, the epic rivalry that destroyed an empire and forged our age, 2008. Freedom's Forge, how American business produced victory in World War II, 2012. Douglas MacArthur, American warrior, 2016. And now Arthur's latest and the subject of today's talk. What these works have in common is that they focus on great, brilliant, willful men, statesmen, generals, cultural, religious, and business leaders at what turned out in retrospect to be decisive turning points in history. These men did not come from nowhere. They were deeply influenced by the social and economic currents of their times. But they interpreted reality very differently than their contemporaries and sometimes equally great rivals. They were, through force of will, persistence, and sometimes luck, able to impose their own unique visions on practical events and, through their choices, to move history in a direction it otherwise would not have taken. So the answer to the historical puzzle is both. But it is more than both. For Herman shows time and again that the ultimate results of the actions of even the most far-sighted men were typically very different from what they had envisioned. Arthur's previous works have pitted the great men of faith versus the great secular philosophers of 18th century Scotland, Gandhi versus Churchill at the beginning of the post-colonial era, MacArthur versus the Joint Chiefs in the months before the Battle of Inchon. In 1917, he pitched the visions of Wilson versus those of Henry Cabot Lodge in the United States, of Lenin versus those of Alexander Kerensky, our joint friend, and Leon Trotsky in Russia, and both the bold and also the bold deeds and aspirations of Wilson and Lenin against each other in that calamitous year whose results are still with us and have been very different than either of those men envisioned or planned. In Gandhi and Churchill, and now Wilson and Lenin, Arthur has demonstrated the potential of the dual biography. But I want to tell you that Arthur himself leads a dual life, best-selling historian and think tank policy analyst, so that his own biography would need to be titled Herman and Herman. Here, for example, is Arthur's latest book, not this one, but this one, Pacific Partners, 
forging the U.S.-Japan special relationships. In recent months, most authors approaching the pub date of a big and ambitious new book would have been giddy with excitement and anxiety. Instead, Arthur has been conferring with government leaders in Washington and Tokyo about this book and contributing important original uh, analyses, often in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, on subjects ranging from the potential of destroy-on-launch anti-missile systems, the little-understood revolution now underway in quantum computing, and the new tripartite balance of power in international politics. The quality and prolificacy of Arthur's work in both realms is, of course, a matter of great annoyance to his Hudson colleagues. But the two realms are, I think, highly complementary. His understanding of the interplay of ideas, action, and consequence in his histories surely informs his own work of analysis and advocacy on contemporary problems. And, bringing us now to today's talk, his understanding of great historical moments has surely been deepened by his active involvement in some of the most difficult policy choices of his own time right here at Hudson Institute. You're all in for a great uh, treat in Arthur's talk. Uh, you're in for an even greater treat if you take the opportunity to purchase and then read the book he will be talking about. After his talk, there will be a period of, uh, for discussion of questions and answers. Arthur will call on you. Uh, if you are called on, if you would kindly introduce yourself before posing your brief and pointed question. Now, let's all give a warm welcome to Arthur Herman. Well, thank you very much uh, for the welcome. Thank you, Chris, for the introduction. Um, good to see you all here, and I'm delighted to be here to talk to you about my latest book. This is your chance to sort of see not Herman versus Herman, but Herman plus Herman. So uh, this will be perfect for, uh, for your uh, evening's entertainment and I hope for your own intellectual uh, delectation. Um, this is an unusual, uh, exciting book, even for me, because the pairing of the two figures seems so incongruous and so strange. Lenin and Wilson, Lenin, I mean, Gandhi and Churchill, the book that was, uh, that got me into the, as a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, at least made some sort of sense in the, in the sense that the two men were kind of contemporaries. They had met before. They were engaged in a battle over the fate of the British Empire together. Uh, Plato and Aristotle, well, that's a natural fit to have those, to talk about those two together. But Lenin and Wilson, Lenin and Wilson. But what I discovered when I got embarked on this project was the degree to which not only were these two men important in the sense of the, the, that single year, 1917, they made two momentous decisions that would shape the future and direction of uh, world history right down to today. But also that these two men who, at the face of it, would seem so different and so unusual uh, and, and contrasting were in many ways very similar, that they shared certain important characteristics, uh, both from an intellectual standpoint, but also from a psychological and from a point of view of the nature of their character, the direction in which they foresaw, they saw the world moving and the way in which they thought of their own role in that world. 
Um, both of these men are men of immense uh, personal power. Both were men who were and who could be riveting orators. Uh, both were men of immense sense of will and a sense of personal mission, which enabled them to overcome obstacles and to force through decisions that other mere mortals would have been not even attempted, let alone, let alone been able to achieve. Uh, and both men also brought enormous intellectual gifts to the, the role that they played in the world and the role that they would play in the two decisions that I talk about in the book and that really are the, the watersheds, watersheds of modern history. Um, they are both intellectuals in that sense. They are men who see the world through the prism of ideas, or their own ideas, and who saw their role as being ones in which their ideas were not only desirable to achieve and to be fulfilled, but that were inevitable through the force of history, the direction of history that it would take, even though their two visions of what that history would be were very, very different and, and in many and, and we in the end in the end diversion. So two men, two sets of decisions. This is what this is what the book is about. The first decision, Woodrow Wilson's decision, and that is to enter the United States into World War One, which marks the emergence of the United States as a global superpower. We often think about the United States' role as a global superpower as being the result of World War II and emerging in the post-war world, in which, of course, the United States undeniably played a very powerful and, and, and important part in creating a new international order and sustaining that order after World War II. But America's real emergence, as I'll explain to you tonight, real emergence as a global superpower comes not in World War II, but in World War I. Uh, and it is America's entry into that conflict that now establishes the United States as, a num as the number one power dictating the future of international affairs and also the international arbiter of international affairs and what takes place after that. So that's one decision. Wilson's decision to enter the United States in World War I in April of 1917. Several months later, in November of 1917, comes the second momentous decision, this time made by Vladimir Lenin, and that is Lenin's decision to overthrow the Russian Revolution, the real Russian Revolution that had toppled the Tsar and had created a democratically-based provisional government and to impose a Bolshevik revolution in its place, communist revolution. Now, the impact of that decision and that event in 1917 is, I think, more fully known and understood today than the impact of, Le uh, of Wilson's, in the sense that what we have, what we come to realize is, is that the establishment of that Bolshevik revolution, the establishment of a communist Soviet Union, will have immense consequences over over the next over the next 60 years. When we think about the legacy of Lenin's decision and of the triumphant march of what he saw as a Marxist vision for the world of a, of a world revolution leading to a world 
dictatorship of the proletariat and the handing, passing of that torch from Marx and Engels to Lenin and Stalin and then on to their other imitators and emulators, not only in, not only in the Soviet Union, of course, but around the world. Uh, that legacy we've come, we're, we're coming to grips with more and more. Uh, uh, and, the, and the terrible legacy that is left, how many dead are we talking about? What, between 65 and 100 million, depending on how you do the numbers, right? Uh, and, and 65 to 100 million is still counting when we think about those who were dying in places like North Korea uh, and those who are still dying, in, in fact, in, in the People's Republic of China, which is, after all, part of the direct inheritance of the Lenin's legacy and what's taken place here. And yet this legacy, in many ways, as I say, is now one in which there is a sense of the door has closed. The end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, marks a kind of closure in many ways with that communist legacy, at least in terms of our view of it in terms of world affairs. Chris DeMuth mentioned uh, Alexander Kerensky, who in the course of the book, in the course of our discussion, you'll see is the counterpart in many ways to Lenin and these things, and spoke of him as our common friend. This is a reference to the fact that, as I mentioned in the book, in the, in, in the book, in the conclusion that when I was a, I'm happy to say, very young boy, uh, I got a chance to meet Alexander Kerensky uh, when my father was a graduate student at Stanford University. And from time to time, he and Kerensky would join each other for lunch out on the quad at Stanford. And at one point in one of their discussions, I came along one day uh, to, to join my dad for lunch. And so on. And at one point in the course of the discussions, Kerensky got, became very stirred up and he sort of said to my father, he said, you and I, in his thick Russian accent, you and I will never see end of communism. But he, pointing at me, he will see end of communism. Well, it turns out he was right. In fact, he was, his projection was premature because my father's still alive. So in that sense, in that sense, Kerensky was wrong. But of course, he was right. And in that sense, we have, as a, as a force in international politics, we have seen an end to, current, to, to the communist legacy, Lenin's legacy. From that standpoint, that is true. But it's also important, I think, for us to think about the legacy of Wilson in this and of America's entry in World War I and the range of obligations as well as responsibilities the United States took on as a result of that decision and the role that it would play over the years. Because over the course of the next decades, the United States and American presidents, Nixon, Reagan, Ford, and Carter, in this particular photo, these presidents would all of them be grappling with the, the consequences of Lenin's, of, of Wilson's decision and the consequences of Wilson's legacy for the United States and its points of engagement in international affairs. And of course, uh, the two most, our two most recent presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, also too, and over, again, in very different ways, have, were wrestled with that same legacy, the same legacy that Wilson had left for us in terms of the U.S.'s imagined role and perceived role in international affairs and what would take place there as well. And yet this too, I think, like the legacy, Lenin's legacy, may be coming to a close. And by this I mean that we may be seeing a change in the direction of what happens and where world affairs are going to go uh, almost exactly 100 years 
after the starting point that Lenin and Wilson set us off on. The subtitle of the book is the Lenin, Wilson, and the Birth of the New World Disorder. And that, of course, is really the theme of the book, is that these two men who believed by the decisions that they were making were leading, were setting the world forward on a new, more perfect plane, a new world order of justice and of of, of human harmony would emerge from their decisions, turned out to be the opposite. That in fact, far from giving birth to a new world order, that what would happen over the next 100 years would be the birth of a new world disorder. But that period, as I suggest, may be coming to an end. And the Wall Street Journal op-ed, which I did about a month ago, which is I had we have out in the front and also here at the front at the book signing, I think, was my attempt to sort of chart out what I thought the contours of where the change is coming uh, and where the direction is going, but also the forces that are leading to it. But that's, that's, talking about, that's talking about the future, which is not the kind of thing that historians really like to do or ought to do very often. They actually do like to do it a lot, but they really shouldn't, in fact, at that. Because as everybody knows, the historian's real role is to, is to correctly predict the past. And that's what I think we can think about as a part of the role of which we understand the two decisions that were made and the history that underlay them. So a legacy, right, that's, that stretches down from Wilson's time to the present. Uh, these are the issues that have to be grappled with. These are the ones which we still confront as part of that overall discussion. But to begin at the beginning, 1914, a major war, a world war, broke out between the major, the great powers of Europe. Uh, a war that would pit Germany and its allies, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey, and Bulgaria, against the uh, Triple Entente, as it was known, the Entente powers, France, Great Britain, Russia, and various tributaries who also joined in the fight on the side of what would be known as the Allies. For more than 18 months, this war raged in Europe with almost no role for the United States to play. The United States was officially neutral in this conflict. The real question had, was, became by the end of 1916, the real question the United States had become, as this war ground on and as the conflict became more and more bloody, the question was, what role should the United States play in this conflict? Um, well, in the minds of some, such as former President Theodore Roosevelt, who was still a major figure within the Republican Party, it was very clear the United States' role should have been entering the war on the part of the Allies from the very beginning. Almost from October of 1914 on, shortly after Germany had invaded Belgium and the conflict had now become... Uh, a, a general one, pitting all of these, all the European great powers against each other, that the United States had a responsibility to enter on the side of the other Western democracies, France and Britain, in order to prevent Germany from dominating Europe. That, the, that a Europe dominated by Germany would have bad effects for the United States and the United States' nat uh, national interests that the United States had a national interest in maintaining a stable balance of power in Europe and that the 
That German invasion of Belgium and France represented a violation of that. The United States had a role to play. That's Theodore Roosevelt's position. The current president, Woodrow Wilson's view, was not so fast. In his view, the United States' stance of neutrality was not only a matter of important uh, political and diplomatic stance, stay out of a conflict which is becoming bloodier and more and more destructive, especially after the battles of Versun and Verdun and the Somme, but also the United States has a responsibility in a moral sense to stay clear of this conflict. That this is a conflict between great powers fighting each other for territory and for domination. And the United States isn't part of that kind of a world. The United States' position in the world is one of, of a different moral plane and has been ever since its founding. And that the United States, therefore, must steer clear of this kind of conflict because it's only one that will drag us down to the level of ordinary mortal powers as opposed to the, the, the providential role that America needs to play in world affairs and has as a symbol and beacon of freedom for peoples in all places. And for Wilson, this issue of the providential mission, God, is very serious. The man is, comes from a Presbyterian background. He is, takes his, his, the, the religious aspect of this, the dimension of this very, very seriously, particularly America's role in the world. And this is also then something, too, which has to affect the way in which America looks upon its role in world affairs. And that is as one that stands apart from great power conflicts and remains neutral from them, not one that takes advantage or takes sides in such conflicts. In fact, in, but in Wilson's case, in Wilson's case, it was not as if he wanted to keep the United States out of this conflict altogether, just not in a military or in a direct way. Because in Wilson's mind, it was clear to him that as this war became more and more stalemated and as the casualty list grew, and as the destruction of national, of national resources by all the participants became more and more, more and more draining and, and, and really existential for their continued, their continued existence as sovereign states, it, this then would become a situation in which the United States could now step forward and present itself as the umpire by which this war and the conflicts underlying it could finally be set at rest and suddenly put to an end. And this is what he kept telling people about the way in which he saw the course of the war. He said, we have to stay out of this conflict. He said, because what's going to happen is, what's going to happen is, is that when the European powers reach the, uh, a level of bloodshed that they can no longer sustain, they will come to me and they will say, you were right all along. This was a wrong conflict. This is a wrong war altogether. Can't you please help us sort these issues out? This is the way he talks to people. They will come to him and sort of say, we clearly got ourselves over our heads, and so we need America, we need you, Woodrow Wilson, to help us set things right and to figure out a way to make a peace that will last, a lasting and just peace that will come through all of this. So to a degree, this is how Wilson sees himself in this role, as a kind of neutral umpire in world affairs. We have to remember that the man was, after all, a college professor. And so assuming a role of moral superiority is natural. From such, a, from such a background and such a career experience. In president of Princeton University. And there is a degree through which all of Wilson's career as president, both domestically but also in foreign affairs, and through the course of the, course of the events I'll be talking about, there is a degree to which Wilson always saw himself kind of in the role of a sort of school teacher, right? The schoolmaster, that the world's nations come to him as 
pupils who don't understand, who are misbehave, and who don't understand what, what it is that makes for a real, lasting, and just peace and just world. And Woodrow Wilson will explain it to them and will demonstrate how this works. And they'll sort of say, you know what, President Wilson, you're right. This really is the way in which things should work here. And that by doing this, he would fulfill a role not only for the United States, but for the peoples of the world, for all of the masses around the world who had suffered injustices, who had suffered oppression. Wilson would be their voice in world affairs and would be able to set this, uh, be able to set things right and create a new shining era for humanity as well as the United States. But in order to achieve this, the United States had to stay out of the war. That was crucial in Wilson's mind. The United States had to stay out of the war, had to remain neutral, so it could step in and play that umpire kind of role. And this is why, even after one provocation after another, Wilson insists the United States stay uh, neutral. Uh, this was getting more and more difficult to do, however, uh, as German submarine warfare began to expand to sink neutral shipping without warning as a means by which to strangle Great Britain and France and cut them off from, the, from their sources of supplies uh, and equipment, particularly their sources of supplies for the United States. Because the whole time that Wilson and the United States are remaining technically neutral, American companies and, Amer and Wall Street are constantly supplying the British and French with loans and with foodstuffs and a whole range of supplies that keeps them in the war. America was engaged in a de jure neutral stance in the war, but de facto we were very much backing and supporting and propping up the Allied side. The Germans knew that, which is why it was important for them to sink those ships before they landed in English ports. And so you had, it, you had alarming incidents like, for example, the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915, which caused a tremendous outwork, huge furor all across the United States as well as in Britain about this barbaric act of killing civilians without warning in this kind of way. And even Wilson was stirred at this point to suggest to and to send an angry note to the German foreign minister that if this kind of behavior continued, then the United States might have to reconsider its neutral stance and begin to sort of really take steps uh, to defend itself on the high seas in ways that would be very difficult to extract the United States from supporting the Allies in other ways. Well, the Germans got the message because they knew from the beginning. The Germans were not stupid. They understood that if the United States entered the war on their side, on the Allies' side, the war was done. Germany was going to lose if the United States put all of its industrial weight, all of its financial weight behind the Allied cause, that that would be that. So the Germans backed off. They ended the unrestricted submarine warfare campaign, placed constraints on their U-boat captains, and held them back. But it didn't last. Because as the Germany's own situation in the war on land became more and more desperate, it became clear to the German leadership that the only way in which they could win this war or stave off defeat was by resuming all-out submarine warfare in order to starve Britain and France and bring them to their knees and to surrender. And if that meant sinking American ships, then that's what they were going to do. They still counted on the idea, however, that, that Wilson himself would still not be willing to take the decisive step of putting the United States into the war. They still counted on him to play that, want to play that schoolmasterish role of being, boys, boys, enough fighting, that's enough, pulling them apart and getting everything sorted out at the end. They assumed he would still play that role. But in case he didn't, in case the, the demand from the public 
that American ships being sunk, this had to come to an end, it had to be brought. If that case that came, then the Germans had to have a plan B. And the plan B was the brainchild of this man, the German foreign minister, Arthur Zimmermann. And so Zimmermann came up with an idea and sent a telegram, a coded telegram. There it is. Uh, sent a coded telegram to the president of Mexico in, in late January 1917, saying that if the German resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare by Germany did provoke the United States to enter the war, that Germany would offer to Mexico the opportunity to open a second front against the United States. We'll fight them over here in Europe, but you fight them along the border. And if you do that, then Germany will provide support for you so that you can reclaim territory you lost back, you know, in the 1840s in that, uh, in that, uh, in that Mexican war, right? We'll help you regain Texas. We'll help you regain uh, Arizona. And we'll help you regain New Mexico. Coded, tele coded telegram. Well, the British naval intelligence intercepts the telegram, decodes it, realizes they've got gold here in terms of getting the United States now finally to commit itself to the, to the Allied cause. They leak the telegram. They don't leak the telegram. They give the telegram to, to Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and in the process, uh, they, it leaks out to the press. There's a massive outcry across the country about this. The Germans are going to help the Mexicans reclaim states of the, of the Union in this way, reverse the course of the Mexican War. I mean, even Wilson was outraged, particularly when he found out the fact that they used Western Union in order to send an encoded telegram. They actually used American State Department cables because the Germans had all, cables had all been cut by the British at the beginning of the war. And so the Germans sort of said, you know, to appeal to a neutral United States, we need ways to communicate to our diplomats in Washington and elsewhere. And so Wilson very generously allowed the Germans to use State Department his own State Department cables, and they used it. They used it to send this telegram. So even he, even he thought this was a bit much. And the, uh, and and even at that point, I think things he still probably would have held his held held back, because the first reaction of those who still wanted to get the United States out of the war, avoid going into the war, was that this has to be a forgery, that the British have forged this telegram in order to provoke us and to get us into a froth so that we'll want to go to war and join the allies in the cause. So there was a big debate in the Senate for days about whether this telegram was in fact forgery or not. Debates went back and forth. And finally, a pro-German journalist, American journalist who was in Switzerland at the time, met, ran into Arthur Zimmermann and said to him, said to him, you didn't send that telegram, did you? And Zimmermann said, yes, I'm afraid I did. And that was it. At that point, it was clear that by that idiocy, Zimmerman ensured that now this had become a causeless belly the United States had to act. And so that's what Wilson did. On April 6, 1917, he calls together Congress to declare war against Germany. But even here, Wilson's reasons remained the same as they were the same schoolmasterish pose or direction that stance that he had taken at the very beginning. Because in Wilson's mind, now the United States was going to enter the war, not in order to protect national interests, not in order to protect American lives or American shipping, or to protect American honor. 
that America would now enter the war for the same reasons that it stayed out of the war before. In other words, they would do this now for the highest possible moral reasons, which would have nothing to do, or even contrary to American national interests, but would be in order for the benefit of humanity. That by entering the war, the United States would, in that famous phrase, be able to make the world safe for democracy. They would make this the war that would end all wars. And that therefore, America's providential mission to save the world from itself would now continue, but not by remaining neutral, but by entering the war as an associated power on the side of Britain and France. Now, this was an extraordinary decision, April of 1917, for someone like Wilson to come to. And it was, even at that point, there were still debates about whether the United States really should enter the war. There was, a, there was, there was strong support, even then, for the neutrality. And many who had wondered about whether the United States entry was a good thing or a bad thing or a direction was going on here. But there was only one person, I suppose, probably in all of Europe, who believed that not only was the United States entry a question of whether it was desirable or not, but that it was inevitably inevitable. That, of course, the United States would enter on the side of the neutrals because the United States was a capitalist country. And that was this man, Vladimir Lenin. And in his book, Imperialism, The Last Stage of Capitalism, he had, in fact, predicted that all of the great powers that were written in 1911, that all the great powers of the world, uh, capitalist powers, would end up fighting a war with each other for imperial dominion around the globe and around the world. And that, therefore, the United States, as the biggest number one capitalist country, wouldn't be able to stay out of the conflict, would have to join into, into, the, into the fray uh, and become part of, the, part of the conflict. That's Lenin's read on the American decision to enter World War I. It is a view that, again, springs from an intellectual view of the world, of an understanding of the world in terms of conflicts of ideas and ideals, and that, therefore, how the United States behaves and acts has nothing to do with the force of personality, has nothing to do with directions of politics or accidents of history, but has to do with the inevitability, the inevitability of history uh, and the inevitability of events, something that he had learned from Marx which he saw and wanted to translate into forging a new destiny also for his native Russia. And it was that effort to forge that Marxist destiny for Russia that had driven him into exile. He spends, you know, for a large part, large part of his, of, of his, of his life in exile, running from one place to another to avoid the czarist police, uh, but also furiously fighting against his fellow radical, uh, uh, radical uh, rivals, social revolutionaries, other Marxists, the Mensheviks or the Bolsheviks, which is the group that he led, and so on. All of these kinds of conflicts uh, going on behind the scenes uh, in cafes and hotel rooms and dingy apartments uh, all across Europe, wherever Lenin could find some sort of, some sort of uh, 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 safe haven uh, and be able to, be able to uh, eke out a living with his wife. These years in exile for Lenin were a torment to him. He believes very strongly that he had the solution, the direction in which not only history but Russia was going to be he headed, and that the place in which this could take place and way in which Marx's great revolution could take place was not going to be in the great industrialized countries like England or France or Germany, but that Marxist revolution would be the easiest to achieve in the least industrialized countries, 
Because once you toppled the political system, chaos would result. And that out of that chaos, a small, dedicated, revolutionary band would be able to arise and seize power for themselves and manipulate the institutions of the country in order to shape it in a radical, revolutionary direction. And this is precisely what Lenin foresaw for himself and his role and his followers in Russia, was being able to seize power as a small, dedicated minority, take Russia in the direction of the dictatorship of the proletariat, and use that then to spread world revolution and to create a, a, a massive class war that would spread across Europe and would topple one existing bourgeois regime after another and leave, the, leave, the, leave room for a new order, a new Marxist order to arise out of the rubble. This was Lenin's great vision. This was Lenin's great plan. The problem was he couldn't really get things done sitting there in ex exile in Switzerland, you know, in his, in his little apartment up above a butcher shop. It didn't really work so well for him. What was needed was a moment in which he, a, a moment, an opportunity that would come in order to trigger this kind of result, this kind of result. And he got it, as it happens in 1914, when Russia enters World War I on the side of Britain and France against Germany and Austria. It's a war that places demands on the Russian economy and Russian government, which it cannot fulfill. And by the end of 1915, Russia was in a state of chaos. The government had collapsed. Internal order had collapsed. The economy had collapsed. The Russian armies were at the point of collapse. And uh, the Russian citizens, uh, even those living in the nation's capital, in St. Petersburg, were unable to get food. Well, it took until the winter of 1917, the extremely cold winter of 1916-1917, before uh, the discontent and the anger finally broke. And it came on March 8, 1917, with a women's march through the capital in Petrograd, which they renamed St. Petersburg, renamed it as Petrograd, to make it more Russian and less German in terms of the effect of the date. And a women's march through the streets. And you can see the banners here that hang up there, the banners that, that, are, that, that say, support our troops, which is very interesting because they're still fighting at the front. Support our troops, support our families, support a general peace, meaning a peace of all the nations. The plea is bring the war to an end so that we can get back to living our lives and feeding our families again. Well, the protests spread over the next several days. And by March 10th, uh, groups of workers and soldiers who had deserted from the garrison of Petrograd had formed together a representative committee, in Russian called a Soviet, which very quickly became a substitute government for the Tsar's government, which now found itself in a state of complete uncertainty and paralysis as a result of the breakdown of law and order within the capital. That was on March 10th. On the, by March 15th, the Tsar, Nicholas II, hovering between the decision to either suppress the rioters by armed force or to give in to their demands for a new government, finally conceded that this was no longer, he no longer had a constructive role to play and it had become, in fact, a, a inter, became really sort of an obstacle to ending the crisis, the governmental crisis in Russia. He abdicates in the, in the name of his son and then, and then the name of his brother. 
the fall of the, the, of, of the Romanov Empire then takes less than a week in which it collapses. And a new government, a provisional government, together putting together, drawn from members of the representative Duma as well as from, the, from ex-members of the Tsar's cabinet, come together to form a new government and to prepare the, the grounds for a constituent assembly to draw up a new democratic constitution for the new Republic of Russia. That's the revolution. By the way, Kerensky is the figure and the standing figure at the second from the right is Alexander Kerensky, who becomes really the sole force behind the provisional government in the period of time in which it, in which it holds power. So that's actually the Russian Revolution. That's the real Russian Revolution. It's the one that you know you watch and you go go watch reruns of Dr. Zhivago and so on, where they're all celebrating the fall of the Tsar and so on. This is that's the real Russian Revolution. It's in March of 1917. Lenin has nothing to do with it. Lenin is still in Switzerland, in Zurich, trying to figure out how the hell he's going to get to back to Russia in order to take advantage of the breakdown of law and order, which he's reading about in the newspapers, but he's helpless to do anything about it. And so he would have continued to be used, helpless to do anything about it, except for this man, General Ludendorff. Because the Germans, who, of course, are at war with Russia while all this is happening, are watching what's happening in, in Petrograd and in Russia with delight. He doesn't look like delight right here in, in, in Ludendorff's glasses, but believe me, they were delighted here. Because what they foresaw is that if this collapse continues, Russia may be taken out of the war altogether. And all those 60 divisions of German troops that were there fighting in the Russian front could now be moved over for a final decisive blow in the West. And so the question is, is that how do we foster more chaos? How do we get more trouble going and really drive Russia out of the war? And so it was the uh, uh, German consul in Bern, Switzerland, who got the bright idea that why don't we send the radical exiles living here in Switzerland, the radical Russian exiles here, send them back into Russia, let them stir up the mob, cause more chaos and agitate the crowds and so on to convince them that the only way in which Russia can save itself is to get out of the war and sign a peace treaty with Russia and let's wind this whole kind of thing up. Let's get it all done and all that. Well, the only one, the only radical they could find who was willing to, to do it and to be, take, take German pay and German support in order to do this was, you guessed it, Vladimir Lenin. And so at the end of March, the Germans arranged for him to leave his, his apartment in Zurich to go to Basel. Here you can see them in the streets. There's Lenin over there talking very vociferously to one of his colleagues. Lenin and his band of exiles, Bolshevik exiles, load up onto a train which takes them through German-occupied territory. See, there's no way Lenin could get to Russia because you'd have to go through German territory in order to do it. You'd be arrested as an enemy combatant. But the Germans say, we'll give you a safe passage. In fact, when you get there, we'll open a bank account for you. It will keep you supplied so you can continue your agitation and keep stirring things up. And Lenin says, well, do it. No problem. Because Lenin believed that once he got there to Russia, once he got there, his, his goals and his dreams could be fulfilled. And that's what happens. When he arrives in, in, on April 9th, 1917, at the Finland station, he was there with one mission, one mission alone. And that is to topple the provisional government and to take Russia out of the war altogether so he can focus on reordering Russia and transforming Russia according to his revolutionary model. And he does it by putting together a 
irresistible political slogan, which then becomes the slogan and motto of the Bolshevik party to draw popular support within Russia. And the slogan is land, bread, peace. That the Bolsheviks coming to power will bring those three things to Russia, the three things that Russia most wants. Of course, what would actually happen in the end is that Lenin and the Bolsheviks would bring neither of the, neither of the three. But the Russian people didn't know that. And the workers and the soldiers who were desperate for an end to their suffering and the end of the conflict didn't realize that. And so if they don't take an active role in support of Lenin, they're not going to take a role in, against him. Lenin tries twice to topple the provisional government by violence. First in July of 1917. This is a scene, by the way, in the streets as troops and sailors from the Kronstadt naval base tried to march on the uh, provisional government headquarters at the at the, at Tarida Palace, and street fighting broke out uh, in, in Petrograd. Um, the government was basically helpless to try and stop him. That's how weak they had become at that point. But they leaked to the newspapers the story, the sensational story about Lenin accepting bribes from the German government, which, of course, Russia's still at war with, basically saying, he's, in effect, he's a German secret agent. And a lot of the popular support which Lenin had been gaining uh, sapped away. And so in the end, Lenin had to flee into exile. But he gets a second chance in November of 1917, comes into tower. And this time, the provisional government is too weak and too, too, too un, unsupported to be able to stop him. And so he's able to seize power and establish a regime, as I describe in the book, which really becomes the model for all revolutionary Marxist Marxist-Leninist revolutions from that point on, uh, but the laying the foundations of what we call the totalitarian state, in which there is no opposition, no resistance, total surveillance, total control uh, over the economy and over the lives of citizens. This is the course, then, that Lenin sets the world in motion and sets for Russia in the process. And as the poster says, long live the socialist revolution. The Socialist Revolution, not only in Russia, but throughout Europe, that Lenin saw would now spread and become part of the future. Only one person in Lenin's entourage had doubts about whether that promise of world revolution would really take place or what that future held. And that was Leon Trotsky. Trotsky, who was instrumental in the achievement of the successful coup in November of 1917, uh, who there became leader of the Red Army during the Russian Civil War. But Trotsky had his doubts about whether, in fact, he had his doubts about whether, in fact, the Lenin's revolution would, draw, would, would, would sweep aside all opposition before it. Because unlike Lenin, Trotsky had actually lived in the United States. He had lived in the United States for a period of time right, as a socialist journalist, lived in the Bronx, as a matter of fact, grew up and visit the house that he lived up in the Bronx. It's, it's there on 158th Street, as a matter of fact. Um, lived there. He knew something about the American movement, the American socialist movement. And as he said, when he returned back to Russia to, take, to join Lenin as part of the, the when his revolution was breaking loose in Russia, he said, he wrote it, he said later on, he said, I felt as I left that perhaps I had had a glimpse of the nation in which the future of mankind would be forged, the United States. 
that already Trotsky could see that there was a possibility that these two giants, these two powers, Lenin's revolution and the United States, would be on a collision course at some point, that these would be the two great forces that would shape the world and shape history afterwards. So what was happening in the United States? Well, the, the initial enthusiasm for the war that came with, with Wilson's declaration very quickly turns to disillusionment as the American, American Expeditionary Force finds itself caught in the same military bind that the Allies had been caught in since 1914, the, the, the horrors of trench warfare uh, and the sort of static warfare that was, that was common coin on the, and, and common in the Western Front that would cost thousands, even tens of thousands of casualties for even a single gain. At the same time, also, Wilson's declaration of war had led to ugly consequences within the United States as well, as the effort to whip up patriotic fervor for the war led to a massive wave of anti-German sentiment, of, which reached, in many ways reached ridiculous proportions, orchestras that would no longer perform works by German composers, schools that banned the teaching of German in schools. Uh, uh, phone systems in South Dakota, the phone system banned the use of German on the phones. You can't do that. Now, of course, this is the United States with large German immigrant, German-American immigrant population at the same time. So the tensions often spilled out into the violence. Uh, and in fact, in the spring of 1918, a German-American, German Robert Prager, was lynched in a town in Illinois, which the name escapes me right now. Um, these are the men, these are the 11 men, who were placed on trial for his murder. As you can see, all of them waving their American flags as they march into the, march into the jury, march into the, into the trial room. And in fact, all 11 of them were uh, within 45 minutes acquitted of murder, which they said was not murder, but an act, not an act of murder, but an act of patriotism. Of course, there are other aspects too, the ugly sides of the uh, American involvement in World War I, Wilson's insistence on resegregating the American armed forces as well, uh, which also led to important and, and significant racial discontent and feelings at the same time. Ugly riot that broke out uh, in, uh, in, in, in Oklahoma, in which uh, African-American soldiers were, were lynched and murdered. Uh, a wave of race riots that would break out across the United States during Wilson's years. In fact, the day, the day Wilson returns from the Paris peace talks, right, the, the signing of the Paris peace treaty in 1919, Washington, D.C. is on fire from race riots, which you can see from his bedroom in the Capitol in the process. But in the end, the United States intervention proved to be decisive in the war. And when Wilson comes to Europe, the first American president ever to leave the United States during his term of office, to participate in the signing of the Paris Peace Treaty, he is treated almost as a god by the French and by the other allied populations. Not only because their, his inter, America's intervention has ended this war, this conflict that they've been, been involved with and caught up with, but also because they see the possibility that Wilson's great vision of a world made safe for democracy, a world for which war ends all wars would take place, uh, and, and they see him as the man who can bring that kind, of, that kind of promise. That was certainly the promise, the hope that Wilson himself had when he arrives at the Paris Peace Treaty talks 
with David, with David Lloyd George, with Clemenceau of France, um, and Orlando of Italy. But in very short period of time, Wilson is forced to make one concession after another to the other victors uh, with regard to punishment of Germany, with regard to reparations, with rearrangements of borders and territories, all of which I describe in the book, but all of which, all of which Wilson believed and hoped could be set right by a single institution, the one that would arise from the ashes of the war and arise from the signing of the final peace treaty, which would be the League of Nations, a community of nations that would draw together to bring all wars to an end and to, and to, and to adjudicate any future disputes between nations that ordinarily would lead to war. Well, it's the, that League of Nations, the existence of the League of Nations and the terms and limits of its powers, including limits to American sovereignty, that becomes the uh, point of contact and clash between Wilson and his leading nemesis in the Senate, Republican Senate leader and chairman of the, of the Foreign Relations Committee, Henry Cabot Lodge. Henry Cabot Lodge, who had inherited Theodore Roosevelt's view about why the United States should enter the war. Roosevelt's view of what the United States' role in the world should be and what the role of such an institution of such as League of Nations should be. Very good to have a good debating society, but don't have it one in which places important legal limits on American sovereignty, on American national interests. And the clash between them leads to the defeat of the treaty in the Senate, uh, leads to uh, Wilson's breakdown of health as a, result of, uh, as a result of campaigning for it, and he, Wilson uh, leaves office a broken and dispirited man. But the damage done by the Versailles Treaty goes far beyond the United States and Wilson's reputation, or even Europe. It spreads to Asia, for example. The refusal on the part of the Versailles Treaty, um, uh, the, the Paris Peace Talk officials, to accept Japan's push for a, a clause within the Covenant for League of Nations at recognizing equal, racial equality, that rejection leads to massive upheavals in 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 the in Japan and a, and a deep sense of resentment there. Uh, the concessions that are made to Japan in order to buy off their acceptance of this dropping of the plank with regard to racial equality, uh, the annexation of Shandong province, for example, in China, leads to the birth of the May 4th movement. Leads to the birth of the May 4th movement, begins the process of China's disintegration as an empire and as a country uh, and, the, and, and its descent into, into ongoing turmoil. The other un, uh, unexpected guest at the, at the Paris peace talks was a young waiter working in one of the Paris hotels by the name of Ho Chi Minh. And he also had hoped that Wilson would be able to bring the kind of world of self-determination and nationalism that Wilson and I idealism had promised and then watched his hopes dashed. And so the result is, is for Ho Chi Minh, the man he turns to in disgust with Wilson's failures here is going to be the man who had just written a treatise on the colonial questions, which said that the only answer colonial peoples can face to free themselves from their oppressors will have to be revolution, then war, and that was Vladimir Lenin. And so it is the disappointment with Wilson that leads Ho Chi Minh to turn to communism, to turn to Lenin, in the process, uh, just as Wilson's other great mistake, his intervention in Siberia, 
also enough to discredit the United States in its role in the conflict. Uh, and also it's uh, not just enough to discredit the United States, but not enough to topple the Bolshevik regime. And of course, those two great senses of responsibilities would collide later on in the conflict of Vietnam. The birth of the New World Disorder. Here's Wilson at the end of his life, dying of a stroke. Uh, two weeks later, Lenin dies, also of a stroke, uh, from uh, having a bullet, he'd been from an assassination attempt, withdrawn from his bullet. Doctors had operated on a bullet that had embedded in his neck since an assassination attempt two years earlier, which led to a series of strokes. And he, too, also dies a bitter and disillusioned man. Watching the Russia that he had brought revolution to descend into famine and civil war. Famine, which, by the way, ironically, had to be saved by food relief in the United States, administered by one Herbert Hoover, which is the only thing that keeps Russia from disintegration, would be American grain supplied by American farmers and capitalists. And he also sort of sees a successor coming, the kind of man who he does not see as part of his mold, as not having the same kinds of idealistic plans for world revolution and world direction. And in fact, what, both for Lenin and Wilson, already at the time of their death in 1924, that new world disorder instead of a world order that they had hoped and had planned in their own different ways was already unfolding. Because from 1917 on, what the world is going to be is a succession of isms, one after another, trying to fulfill that plan to make the world a more perfect place to establish a more perfect order. Communism, Lenin's legacy. Progressivism, Wilson's legacy. Fascism, socialism and national socialism. Islamism, and we have to think about them as cut from the same mold. The idea of creating a, 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 a providential mission to make the world into a new and more perfect place to save the world from itself, which is to continue down and feed to that feed the process of turmoil is going forward all the way through to ISIS, in which, again, a kind of globalist mission to bring about a world caliphate and bring about a world in a more perfect place. All of these things then spring from the world that, and, the, and the transformations that these two men had brought about and that became part of the part and parcel of daily experience for the next hundred years, not only for Americans or for people living in communist countries, but around the world and in all and and in and in every part of the in every part of the the planet. So in the end, the legacy for Wilson and Wilson and and and, and Lenin, it seems to me, is one that continues to roil and disturb our days today. And yet, in the end, I think we have to say that that Wilson's legacy remains probably of the two of them, the 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 one most most. AJBTO used to say. All things in history in the end have to be considered, judged whether they were a good thing or a bad thing. Lenin, the Bolshevik Revolution, we have to judge in the end a bad thing, undeniably, categorically so. Wilson's entry and transforming the United States into this kind of, the sense of needing to be at all places, defend liberty in all places, the global cop, as we've come to call the term for it, is, I think, in the end, we have to say, on balance, a good thing. It's what saved the world from saved Europe from German domination in World War I, saved the world from fascist domination in World War II, saved the world from communism in the Cold War. 
and has come to play a role in, in, in the war on terror to lead a check on and to force back the Islamicist tide at the same time. That in the end, the role of American interventionism, whatever its twists and turns and misfortunes and disasters, in the end, it becomes Wilson's legacy. It's the one with which I think we still grapple with today, but which we can have to say in balance, on balance, remains the one to which uh, we can sort of say, we can say that this was a legacy that uh, was, if not able to save the world from itself, was able to sell, save it from its worst and most terrible alternatives. Well, thank you very much for listening and staying. I appreciate it. I hope you I hope you have some questions, and I'm happy to field the ones that we we've got that we see here. We'll start there, and then we'll go here. By the way, there's there's your microphone, and uh... can everyone hear me? Okay, uh, Mr. Herman, thank you so much for the edifying and enlightening session. I sure myself I learned a lot from your lecture today. I just have a very specific uh, twofold question. Um, one, I remember Lenin was not so content. Having worked with Stalin, I believe, uh, if my memory serves me well, um, Stalin became the Secretary General in April of 1922, and Lenin sent a letter to the Congress, which was not opened until after his death, and he said this man should never become, like, uh, he should never assume power at any point in his life. But I wonder what ticked Lenin so off to a point that he wrote a letter to the Congress. And if Lenin had lived, and this is more of a speculative question, what do you think would have changed? Very good question, and I think there's a lot of sort of mythology that surrounds the transition from Lenin to Stalin. There is a feeling that somehow the two men were very different, that Lenin had somehow lived, that the gulag wouldn't have happened, or the great famine wouldn't have happened, or the purge wouldn't have happened. Forget it. It all would have happened. Lenin had already set it in motion, as I explain in the book. All the basic foundations of which would become Stalin's Russia, Stalin's totalitarian nightmare, all laid by Lenin. Not by, not, not Stalin. No, the real danger of regard to Stalin was not, in Lenin's mind, was not that he was more brutal. <laughs> it was very difficult to find any of that. It was that he was not dedicated to that world revolutionary sort of messianic role here. That he was seen more content with accruing power to himself as a bureaucrat, as the party's leading bureaucrat. And of course, it's true. Lenin, Stalin does retreat back to the idea of, you know, communism and socialism in one country. In the process, his vision, his horizons didn't stretch out in that kind of globalist way that Lenin that had imagined. I think this was where the key the key strike against him from Stalin from Lenin's point of view. But of course, but of course, he 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 lost that fight. Here, yes, Louis Moran is my name. You mentioned that Wilson insisted on the resegregation of the military. What had been the situation in the armed forces? before then? Um, well, it varied. In the case of the army, there you did have segregated, you did have sort of colored troops and colored units that were part of the, part of the institution. But they were all understood as fighting side by side with whites. And the whole idea of it was, even though they, would have, they had white officers and not black officers, but you serve side by side with, other, with, other, with white units in the process. What happens now is that Colored units are all moved, relegated to support roles, not to combat roles, which means you can't get a medal for valor. It means that you can't get promotions. Under those circumstances, you're basically reduced to busboys. 
for the soldiers who are really fighting the combatants. Now, in the case of the Navy, the Navy was an integrated service. We forget about this. And had been really since Civil War days. All that comes to an end under Wilson. He's going to segregate the two races within, and again, the same thing happens, right? The black sailors become basically busboys serving the role to support support whites. The, the, Wilson was a segregationist. He imposed those rules within the White House. He supported those rules in the South. And when he got it, could get his hands on government and agencies, including the military, he was happy to impose those rules uh, at the same time. Here, and then we'll go around to the back, start here, and then back there, and then over there. Thank you. Uh, Carl Golovic, question about uh, uh, President Wilson's perspective on uh, the central bank. He's responsible for signing into existence, I guess. Uh, I've heard that he came to regret that very specifically later in life, but I've never found a source for the quotes that are often attributed to him. Um, the notion that the central bank hasn't been constitutional and that we've never gotten back to a gold international monetary standard ever since. Oh, well, you take me somewhat out of my purview in terms of that discussion. I feel there might be others who would be able to answer that question more directly and more fully than I am. Um, I think what I would say about regard to, regard to Wilson is, is that there were very few as aspects of uh, citizens' lives that he did not believe that government had a powerful and beneficial role to play. And I'm going to answer my, your question this way, and that is, is that, uh, is that the coming of war in Wilson's case was, in his mind, not only an obligation but an opportunity, an opportunity to grow and expand the role of government into all aspects, into everything that took place. What we ate, how much coal we used, how much gasoline we put into our cars, um, uh, what you watched, what you listened to, what you didn't listen to, all of these things were central to, to Wilson. Uh, I don't know, if, I, I can't give you an account of Wilson's view of the Federal Reserve Bank then or later, or the, whether he did change his mind. You could be right about that. But from the point of view of the power of federal government and the role of federal agencies, uh, Wilson's view and Wilson's ref, reforms, if that's our term for it, will certainly lay the groundwork for the New Deal, and then on for the Great Society at the same time. And I think in all of those directions, Wilson certainly had no regrets uh, and no, uh, no challenges there. To the back. Sir, I wonder if you, if you reflected on your new book, the thing which unites Lenin and Wilson, which is the right of nation for self-determination. In many aspects, at least Henry Kissinger in one of his books reflected that World War II would never happen if Wilson would not encourage the destruction of Austro-Hungarian Empire, which could have been preserved by Czechoslovakians and specifically uh, Mr. Masaryk, who convinced Wilson, when he was told, when was right. told that there are twice more Germans in Czechoslovakia than Slovaks, and Masaryk, just because he lived in Chicago, could speak fluent English, managed to convince English that uh, Wilson that it was not. It's all in my book. It's all perfectly discussion, and the reasons why Masaryk was able to get an audience with him and what the consequences would be. I think that's true. I'll answer this in two parts, one in the narrow sense, but then also in the broader sense. In the narrow sense is, is that what doomed Austria-Hungary 
was not Woodrow Wilson, it was the entry into World War I. That was a fundamental mistake, to become entangled in that conflict with the Germany's goading and, and answer into it. And from then, the, the saving of the empire was, uh, and, and, and holding the conglomerate together would be impossible. The second point, the second broader point, though, is in Wilson's case, at least, self-determination was about bringing peace and justice. That was his great hope that would emerge from it. Very often disappointed and emerge from it. Lenin also talked about self-determination. But in Lenin's view, self-determination was about class war, stimulating war and conflicts that would spread and that would create the kind of turmoil out of which uh, a, a Marxist state would arise. I'm going to take two more, and then we're going to take some time for signing. There and then there. There and there. Hi, uh, my name is Dmitry Pirobrzezinski. Thank you very much. That was a great discussion. I have kind of two questions. Sure. Uh, the first one is about how Wilson and Lenin both came to their ideologies and how married they were to their ideologies. From what I understand, Wilson was originally very much focused on domestic issues and constitutional issues and not really on international affairs. And then the other part, it was, was Lenin a diehard Marxist, or did he just want to overthrow the czar because his brother was killed? But my, the, more important, the more important question I have is, based on your article in the Wall Street Journal, you write that you think we're going back to the time of Bismarck in 1862, and iron and blood and subtle things. Where do you stand on the United Nations? Where does that fit in? Is it something that it's going to diminish in its role? or Because, I mean, there we're fighting with iron and blood. Now we have nuclear weapons, so I think it's kind of dangerous to go back to Bismarck's time. Well, I think, yeah, but don't forget, it's also that same kind of nuclear deterrence that also kept Russia, the Soviet Union, and the United States from going to a general conflict in Cold War. The conflict spread everywhere else, but between those two powers, it remained, it remained in stasis. Um, I'll answer your questions in reverse order. Yes, I think the United, the United Nations is going to have a diminished role, like all multilateral organizations going forward. From now on, the real power will be bilateral, bilateral and trilateral agreements, discussions, uh, and the way that that'll be the future direction that we're going to see, I see, in terms of international relations. The bilateral ties will be the definite ones. The multilateral ones will be important rhetorically, but will really have no sort of lasting impact in the ways in which international affairs are conducted. The key figure for both of these men, I talk about it in the book, and I invite you to, to read, the key figure for both of these men is Hegel, Georg Friedrich Hegel. And the idea that history has a purpose and a future direction to it, a teleological direction. And each of them, Lennon and Wilson, saw that teleology, saw that final purpose in very different ways, but believed themselves to be the instruments of history to achieve that new, more perfect order that emerges from it. And if there's any lesson to emerge out of all of this, both Lennon and Wilson, but also for the last hundred years, if there's any lesson to emerge out of it. And that is, if anybody comes to you and says they've got a plan to make a more perfect world, run the other way. I'm going to have to break off because we're going to do some book signing and clear the room. But I, if, I'm happy to answer questions there, too. Thank you.